My name is Michael Riesman. I'm a professor of international law at the Yale Law School, and I'm honored and privileged to be able to deliver a, mess, uh, a, a lecture to the uh, audiovisual library of the United Nations, which I think is an inspired idea. Uh, I propose today to talk about international law from the uh, perspective of the New Haven School. This is a controversial school of international law, which I think is largely misunderstood, and I hope that this lecture will clarify some of the, uh, the controversy that has surrounded it. Consider for a moment the sorts of professional problems encountered by the contemporary international lawyer. Imagine that you're a member of the International Law Commission, and as such, you are charged with adapting the inherited principles of state responsibility to the political and technological environment of the 21st century, and as part of this, with establishing rules for liability without fault. Or imagine that you are a lawyer in the United Nations Legal Division, and you've been asked to prepare the Secretary General's report on, quote, strengthening and making more efficient within the framework and provisions of the Charter, the capacity of the United Nations for preventive diplomacy, for peacemaking, and for peacekeeping. Or as General Counsel of the United States uh, National Security Council, which advises the President, or the legal advisor of the Department of State, you are asked to advise the President of the United States as to whether to intercept and board on the high seas vessels believed to be carrying nuclear components to a very volatile part of the world. Or imagine that you're a professor of international law and as such you're expected to appraise the quality of work of those who perform the tasks in all of the preceding examples. Now I submit that the way you characterize these problems, the intellectual tools you use to research them, and the information you think relevant for answering them will all be determined by your conception of law. In other words, your conception will influence the role you assume, the method you use, the ethics you adopt, and because of all of those, the outcome. Like the proverbial elephant, the complex of social processes and organizations that are generally referred to as the law may be viewed from many different perspectives. People trained and sometimes locked into one of those perspectives can scarcely believe there may be others equally authentic and that for some or all of the tasks, they may even be more useful than the one with which they were indoctrinated and as a result with which they're most comfortable. Each of these different perspectives is the basis for a legal jurisprudence, a theory of law. Now, John Austin, who gave us the most fundamental definition of positivism, described law as the command of a political superior to a political inferior. 
positivism, as he defines it, and as many of its current proponents define it, views law from the perspective of the receiver of that command, John Austin's political inferior. From this perspective, law is a body of commands. The perspective assumes the independent moral value of obedience to those commands. The essential technical problem is properly identifying the content and meaning of the command and the circumstances and procedures for obedience to it. An entirely different perspective deriving from the natural law tradition is that of the person not receiving the command but the person charged with making decisions. From the perspective of the decision maker the technical and moral problems are confronted, that are confronted are not framed in terms of obedience, but rather in terms of making choices that are appropriate for the relevant community at that particular moment. The body of rules that serves to provide the positivist with strict commands requiring obedience doesn't disappear for the natural lawyer. But from the perspective of the decision-maker, those rules are more complex communications conveying authoritative information about community policies of varying weights that, that have to be assessed and then shaped into a decision. The technical and moral problems associated with obedience recede. Selecting the right jurisprudence for a task is critical. The New Haven School of Jurisprudence is an entirely secular theory of law, but it does take the perspective long associated with natural law, which is that of the decision maker rather than the command receiver. For New Haven, the notion of decision extends across the range of social organization and throughout the hierarchy of power. It includes the making of law or legislation as well as its application through courts or other institutions. And it conceives of both these activities as operating at the constitutive or structural level and in all of the various value processes of a community, including the production of wealth, of enlightenment, of skill, of health and well-being, of affection, of respect, and rectitude. For the positivist, a primary jurisprudential and intellectual task is the identification of what must be obeyed. Hence, the recurring concern with finding the sources of law. From the perspective of the New Haven School, jurisprudence is a theory about making social choices. The primary jurisprudential and intellectual tasks are the prescription and application of policy in ways that maintain community order and simultaneously achieve the best possible approximation of the community's social goals. The jurisprudential tasks necessary for performing these must address a wide range of issues including one, the way one looks at oneself, Two, the way one looks at the social process one is trying to understand and influence. And the three, 
the way one tries to influence it. Let me consider each of these very briefly. First, I turn to what we call clarification of standpoint. So let's, let's return for a moment to the proverbial elephant, the question of perspective. For any phenomenon, there are many possible standpoints, each of which affects it and how it is viewed. Clarity with regard to observational standpoint is an indispensable intellectual tool. Both the reference and the content of the term law will vary depending on whether the standpoint is that of a member of the elite or the rank and file, whether the observer is a member of the system observed, is an outsider, or on the margin. Perception of the same phenomenon may vary depending on the culture, class, gender, age, or crisis experience of the observer. Even within the legal establishment, reference and content will vary depending on whether the observer is a legislator, a judge, a prosecutor, a juror, a defense attorney, an accused, or a victim. No standpoint is more authentic than another, but the scholar must be sensitive to the variations in perception that attend each perspective and must try to disengage himself or herself to select one that is appropriate for the task and carefully determine and consistently maintain it. Now, in all observation and all choice making, the individual and its self-system is the ultimate instrument of perception, appraisal, and choice. Much as it is necessary to calibrate all the instruments in a laboratory before you use them, a second preliminary intellectual task the New Haven School poses is one of self-calibration. By various techniques of self-scrutiny, the person performing a decision function is urged to examine the self, the instrument of perception and choice, for latent emotional problems or neurotic tendencies, subgroup parochialisms to which anyone who's been enculturated is prone, and that even the distortions that may arise from professional conditioning, what our French colleagues call deformation professionnelle. I turn to a second category of intellectual tasks that the New Haven School identifies, and that refers to focal lenses. The New Haven School is concerned with the way the observer looks at things, whether it's state responsibility, the ability of the United, States, the United Nations to perform its security functions, or the way the freedom of the oceans is accommodated with security needs. We all look at our environment and specific issues within it through a variety of conceptual categories. In the physical sciences, different lenses, physical lenses and dyes permit the observer to bring different features or properties of the same viewed object into sharper focus or greater prominence. A comparable function may be performed in the social sciences by carefully crafted conceptual categories that serve as the functional equivalent of focal lenses.
The New Haven School believes that a useful theory about law must avoid the temptation so common in conventional legal method to drastically reduce the universe of variables to a text or a few purportedly key variables. You cannot get very far with any of the problems we started this lecture with if you limit yourself to a few texts. New Haven's theory seeks to be as comprehensive as possible regarding the various factors that influence decision. I turn to the second focal lens. In advanced industrial and science-based civilizations, some major decisions are ongoing and incorporate in the collection of information and the exploration of alternative possible arrangements the efforts of many people. The New Haven School recognizes the demands of economy and tries to develop various techniques of selectivity, especially for rapid decision making. I turn to the third focal lens. The notion of law as a body of rules existing independently of decision makers and unchanged by their actions is a necessary part of the intellectual and ideological equipment of the political inferior in positivism's view. It makes no sense in a jurisprudence which conceives of law as a process in which human beings try to influence the way the social choices are made about the production and the distribution of the things that they want including considerations about the ways in which those decisions should be made. The positivistic framework simply makes no sense here. So New Haven reserves the word law for processes of decision that are both consistent with the expectations of rightness held by members of a community, we call these authoritative decisions, and effective, and we call these controlling decisions. While the particular mix of authority and control may vary widely, a conception of law as authoritative and controlling avoids exercises in irrelevance, whether because of the absence of authority or the absence of control. The fourth lens, a commonly observed pathology of conventional legal research is its tendency to examine only words in documents. A jurisprudence concerned with understanding and influencing the way people behave must be able to study and account for what people do as well as what they think and feel. Deeds, as well as words, are indicators of subjectivity. So New Haven recommends a focus on both. The fifth focal lens. In any group process, some decisions will be concerned with the way decisions henceforth will be taken in that setting. The members of the New Haven School reserve the term constitutive process to focus attention on that portion of a group's activity concerned with establishing, maintaining, or changing the fundamental institutions and procedures of decision making. Focal lenses address the question of how observers look at pertinent data. We have yet to consider what observers look at. Conventional legal analyses and jurisprudences that conceive of law as a body of rules look only at a limited number of texts characterized as legal 
and those social events, facts, which the rules direct attention to. Because New Haven's goal is understanding and influencing decision in ways that will precipitate desired social outcomes, the what of inquiry is necessarily broader than the what of conventional analysis. The New Haven School has adapted, with a number of adjustments, a scheme of cultural anthropology in which any social process is described systematically in terms of those who engage in it, the participants, the subjective dimensions that animate them, their perspectives, the situations in which they interact, the situations, the resources and the aggregate outcomes of which the process of interaction concludes, and of course, the strategies by which those resources are manipulated. If you take each of these categories, you will find that the participants in any decision pro process include those who are formally endowed with decision competence, for example, judges, and all those other actors who, though not endowed with formal competences, may nonetheless play important roles in influencing decisions. In international decision, or international organizations, state officials, non-governmental organizations, pressure groups, interest groups, gangs, and individuals who act on behalf of all other participants and on their own, all figure as participants. I don't see how an assessment of the dangers to and the assets of the international community could be realistic and useful to the Secretary General in the second example without this expansion of focus. By the same token, the inventory will not be of much use if it does not take account of the ways these various actors see things. The perspectives of these actors include their specific patterns of identification and disidentification, their matter-of-fact expectations about past and future, and the value demands that they project. It is clear that in a complex arena, such as the international political system, the perspectives of the various participants actually playing a role in decision often diverge greatly in different ways. Situations, as New Haven uses the term, refers generally to where decisions are made and to special properties of that where. Conventional legal analysis generally looks to courts, secondarily examining the work of executive branches and legislatures. New Haven focuses on the range of centralized and decentralized settings in which decisions are made, their varying degree of organization and formality, the extent to which they're specialized, and the extent to which they're continuous or episodic. We also examine the extent to which participants in a particular situation perceive themselves in a state of crisis. That is, in a state in which they perceive that critical values are deemed to be at stake. The resources on which participants draw their bases of power incorporate both effective power and symbols of authority. The New Haven School 
considers it appropriate for the jurist to correlate the extent, if any, to which control of power is available to, particular f to support particular formulations. In contrast to conventional legal analysis, which usually characterizes the outcome of a legal decision as a more specific statement of rule, New Haven seeks to conceive of outcomes, as do those who are affected by them, in terms of the confirmation or redistribution of the values at stake, of power, enlightenment, wealth, skill, well-being, affection, respect, and rectitude. We've talked about the process for making decisions, but we have not yet focused on the way that the New Haven School looks at the concept of decision. In most contemporary theories of jurisprudence, the term decision generally refers to a judge applying rules to a particular dispute in an organized judicial setting. From the standpoint, however, of a jurisprudence concerned with understanding and making choices, it's clear that the operation of making choices involves many more component functions. If one took the word decision and cracked it, one could separate out the elements of a decision and one would find that there are seven components. The first component is intelligence gathering or the collection, processing, and dissemination of information relevant to choices. The second component function of a decision is the promotion or agitation by which consciousness of a discrepancy between a desirable state and one that is or is about to take place gradually leads to a demand for some type of community intervention and regulation. The third component is prescription or lawmaking. We're all familiar with that. This occurs when actors with varying degrees of authority select and install certain preferences about policy as community law. This may be accomplished by a legislature or some other organized lawmaker, but it's usually, and especially in international law, largely accomplished in informal and sometimes even chaotic processes whose outcomes are generally referred to as custom. The fourth component function of decision is invocation, or the provisional characterization of certain action is inconsistent with a prescription or law, and the demand that some appropriate community institution act to correct the matter. The fifth component function is, of course, one that we're most familiar with. It's the conventional conception of law, its application, which involves the organization of facts of a dispute, the specification of a norm or norms that apply, and the fashioning of a mandatory formulation. When this takes place in a court, of course, it's called a judgment, but it also occurs in informal, unorganized situations. And indeed, the vast majority of applications in international law take place in the latter setting. The sixth component function is the termination or the abrogation of existing norms and the social arrangements based on them the development of transitional regimes, and where appropriate or necessary, the design of compensation programs for those who have made good faith value investments expecting the old regime to continue. And finally, 
The seventh component function is what we call appraisal. And this involves evaluating the aggregate performance of all decision functions in terms of community requirements. A jurisprudential theory concerned with obeying rules may content itself with a few of these decision functions. But a theory that wishes to understand fully the operation of law and to equip jurists to identify and influence decisions in many settings must use a more detailed conception of decision functions. So we have talked about observational standpoint, focal lenses, the way that we can describe the social process of which we're a part and which is trying to, we're trying to influence. And we've talked also about what we mean by decision, which of course is the critical responsibility of the jurist. I'd like to now shift to the conception of intellectual tasks of the jurist, which the New Haven School proposes. Until now, we've examined the way in which the New Haven School recommends that jurist, jurists prepare themselves for decision by clarification of standpoint, scrutiny of self, conscious selection of focal lenses recommended for examining data pertinent to decision, deployment of a map of the social process, and decision functions. The Production and distribution, which is the major concern of politics and law in every community, however, now requires a specific number of intellectual tasks. Jurists are distinctive among anyone who's concerned with decision in that they alone undertake and are generally believed to be authorized to explicitly intervene in the social process in order to bring about changes. Those changes are designed to henceforth discriminate in favor of a particular party or one party's interest or hopefully in favor of the entire community. We found it useful in New Haven to develop procedures for this particular juridical task. The procedures relate to each of five intellectual tasks performed by everyone who participates in the operation of decision functions. The first task is goal clar clarification. A conception of purposive behavior requires an idea of what end that behavior seeks to secure. New Haven recommends that all who perform decision functions examine the demands of particular actors in terms of their congruence with common interest expressed as preferred patterns of production and distribution of every value within a system of stable minimum order. After the clarification of goals, we recommend systematic trend analysis. Once a goal has been specified, it is necessary to examine the degree to which it has been achieved in past decision. This essentially historical function identifies and organizes trends in pertinent past decisions in terms of the goal expressed. What was the goal? What was the degree of achievement in past decision? The third intellectual task is factor analysis. It's important to correlate past decisions with the conditions that influence them and to note whether that context of conditions has changed in a material and a pertinent way. 
So the third intellectual task involves the identification of factors that have influenced past decisions. The fourth intellectual task is what we call projections. What are commonly called predictions may be made by a variety of techniques, but there is no such thing as the future in a determined sense. Whatever will be is a function in varying measure of what actors elect now to do. Projecting different decision options and then examining the prospective aggregate value consequences of each in terms of the goals that have been clarified permits the jurist to select and through time to adjust particular recommendations so that they increase the probability of the eventuation of a preferred future and minimize the eventuation of a dystopic future. Finally, we come to the intellectual task of the invention of alternatives. Each of the problems with which we commenced demands much more than a summary of the rules of the past, much more than a description of past trends, much more than a description of the conditioning factors that influence those trends, and more than projections about the future. When, as is often the case, predictions suggest a likely discrepancy between a goal preference and a probable future, the New Haven School recommends that the jurist explicitly explore alternative arrangements to increase the probability of the eventuation of the desired future. This intellectual task is active and interventionist and engages the fundamental responsibility of the jurist and the citizen. I suspect that much of the confusion and even the passionate anger that the New Haven School generates arises from failure to understand the perspective it adopts. Yet, one simply cannot design or amend a constitution or create new institutional arrangements in a complex community without deploying many of the conceptions and tasks that the New Haven School tries to elaborate. On the other hand, the conceptions and tools proposed by New Haven have little relevance for John Austin's political inferior, the receiver of commands. Indeed, for those who demand an ideology of strict compliance with authority, the perspectives of the New Haven School seem threatening, destructive, even evil. Bent Rosenthal did a doctoral dissertation at the Sorbonne many years ago under the supervision of Madame Bastide, and he focused on the New Haven School. He made the very interesting observation that the New Haven School's methodology seems better tooled for domestic than for international legal problems. I would have thought exactly the opposite. In the circumstances in which the political and power environment is relatively unstable, the ecological environment is in a process of change and degradation. There is low or soft social consensus on many critical social goals, and the aggregate consequences of different decision options are in great controversy. The perspectives and some of the equivalent of the methodology of the New Haven School 
seems to me to be indispensable. These circumstances are recurring in international politics and may be becoming less infrequent even in many domestic legal systems. Consider again the sorts of questions with which we commence this lecture. While some of those questions might be resolved by finding an appropriate rule, most thoughtful people, I submit, would incline to view these as decisions that require a wider range of considerations and intellectual tasks, including clarification of what the community goals are or should be, what the aggregate consequences of the different options available to decision makers in terms of those goals would be, whether design of a particular response or a new institutional arrangement might be required, and what constraints and possibilities are provided by the effective power environment. Much of modern international law is the product of individuals performing the decision functions I reviewed. Individuals created the human rights movement and the environmental movement. New Haven is concerned with clarifying a jurisprudence for those innovators and those who wish to join them. And that, in brief, is the view from New Haven.